Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Dan Villalon of AQR Capital Management. Dan serves as the co-head of the Portfolio Solutions Group. Joining us from the UBS Chief Investment Office, glad to welcome back Dan Scanceroli. Dan serves as head of Portfolio Strategy and UBS Wealthway Solutions for the Americas. In what has become an annual tradition, we We'll be discussing considerations when it comes to investing in alternatives, namely hedge funds, and how investing in alternatives can help to achieve portfolio diversification and help protect against a market downturn. We'll also spend some time today reflecting on the current market environment and how the rate volatility we've been experiencing has impacted the broader markets and perhaps decisions when it comes to one's portfolio allocation. So plenty to cover on today's segment, though to start, Dan. V. Dan S., it's great to be with you both as always. Always nice to get the dance together for our annual conversation. So, welcome back. Looking forward to hearing your insights. Thanks so much. This Dan, Dan, and Dan podcast is uh, probably my favorite annual tradition. So, thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it, Dan. So, to set the stage a bit for our conversation, do want to hear your thoughts on the current market macro environment, where we are, perhaps where we're going from here. So, Dan, V, looking out over the next 6 to 12 months, what's your market outlook? In one word, uncertainty. Uh, Uncertainty has been a big feature of macro conditions and markets, uh, certainly over the past few years. And unfortunately, uncertainty is sticky, it's persistent, and it hasn't gone away. Uh, We are seeing a lot of dispersion in economic forecasts and this is across a range of macro variables. You think of expected inflation, inflation forecasts, uh, growth forecasts, industrial production, you name it. And certainly we're seeing more disagreement among economists uh, and forecasts than we've seen in the past decade. Uh, an analogy uh, for, for what we're seeing here, think about, imagine you're like a weather forecaster and you're either going to be stationed in Los Angeles uh, or New York City it's a lot easier to make a decent guess in L.A. than New York. Uh, the last decade was kind of like being a weather forecaster in L.A. This decade is looking like it's going to be a lot more like New York. Um, okay, so uh, what does this mean for investors? What does this mean for returns? Uh, our research at AQR, we publish a ton of stuff, and some of the recent uh, research we've been undertaking is, you know, what does the environment mean for returns? Um, we find that environments – like the ones we're in today, ones with heightened macro uncertainty, heightened macro volatility, we find they often bring greater risk to traditional asset classes and some private ones too, like uh, private equity, for instance. Any investment that's fundamentally economically tied in one way or another to the direction of markets, it tends to bring risk there. Um, now, I should say environments like these uh, aren't necessarily risky for all investments, uh, in general, uh, the data history shows that uh, macro uncertainty, like what we've been seeing over the past few years, um, has actually been somewhat favorable uh, to diversifying uh, investments, diversifying alternatives, uh, like the, the hedge fund types of strategies that uh, Dan Cassidy mentioned at, at the top of the call. Uh, think of liquid alts as, as an example. Uh, because these strategies typically focus their effort on capturing returns that are unrelated to the market uh, risk, market returns, market environment, uh, they tend to be the ones that are 
quite, if not most, resilient uh, in tumultuous times. So continuing with the market outlook, Dan S., I do want to hear your thoughts, expectations from the vantage point of the UBS Chief Investment Office and timely to hear as we recently did release the latest UBS House View Investment Strategy Guide. Yeah, and to Dan V's point, you know, for us to, to understand where we're going, we need to understand where we've been, right? In, in, in the last year, we've seen significant progress by the Fed to cool the labor market and inflation, and there's been... W- Tremendous dispersion that Dan V mentioned around where those projections can go. Um, whether or not, you know, early in the year, it was, it was almost a, a certainty by markets where they were going to say we were going to go into, you know, a strong recession and that the Fed was going to have to, you know, pivot rates very quickly. Um, and, you know, as the year evolved, we saw this tremendous rally in equities as, as, uh, the, the, the economy stayed much more resilient. Um, there's still a significant amount of work that needs to get done to temper that above flat, uh, above trend economic growth that we're seeing that's keeping in, inflation higher uh, than the Fed's target. Um, but we have seen significant growth without, um, and we've also seen the inflation coming down, you know, very participatively. Remember, just last year when we had this this talk, you know, inflation hit a high during the summer of last year of 9%. And now it's about at 3.7% year over year because of the Fed's actions around one of the most aggressive rate hiking policies in decades. And that is causing a lot of that uncertainty. As the Fed rose the Fed funds rate from zero to five and a quarter, fears of a recession, they've subsided as the economy has shown remarkable resilience. And currently the level of rates you know, it, it is viewed by the Fed and it is viewed by us simultaneously as very restrictive. That doesn't mean that it can't go higher, um, depending on how the economy continues to hold up. But as we look ahead, U.S. consumers are running out of disposable income. Saving rates are now below trend. And that's happening all while wage growth has been softening. And it's indicating that we believe that the Fed is likely near the end of their tightening cycle. While we could see one more hike, as the Fed strives to manage inflation down to their target of two to two and a half percent, we don't see a recession in the next 12 months. Um, Fed policymakers are also signaling that the rise in bond yields that we've seen in the last month and a half, putting bond yields almost simultaneously across the curve near five percent, that could reduce the, the need for you know further rate hikes. And the uncertainty around the Fed's action is is what's causing a lot of the volatility and the dispersion in the market. Overall, even if the Fed is done finishing their tightening policy, it's clear that they will have to keep rates higher for longer until economic growth slows. And we expect that slow that slowing to take effect in the first half of next year. Um it could, you know, but a lot of the data that the Fed is looking at, it comes on a lag. And that's, that is causing a lot of market jitters in terms of, well, will they have to act sooner? Will, will they have to act later? In our base case, we see the 10-year Treasury yield declining to about 3.5% by June of 2024, albeit with that high degree of rate and equity volatility as investors evaluate the chances that the Fed can pull off an economic soft landing. Uh, the combination of high U.S. equity valuations and those 16-year highs that we see on the Treasury yield across the curve it's pushed the equity risk premium to a rare extreme where bonds are more attractive than equities. And we're leaning into bonds. We're not disregarding equities. Um, 
But while rates could continue to rise from here, we believe it's time to lock in yields as they approach their peak. Um, as those restrictive rates take hold on the, on the economic data and we can continue to see it soften, high quality bonds are positioned to drive both income and capital appreciation as the Fed shifts from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing and holding in the meantime uh, over the next six to 12 months. Generally, we see limited downside in intermediate quality bonds because it would take about a 125 basis point increase in yields to wipe out a year's worth of income for a five-year treasury. So that those higher rates are definitely helping us. For taxable investors, we have to look a little differently. The, the highest tax bracket, um, what we're seeing for those investors is intermediate municipal bonds are offering significantly higher taxable equivalent yields. Um, but going further out on the curve, you can pick up significantly higher taxable equivalent yields. The short end of the curve and the long end of the curve are essentially at a 6.9% taxable equivalent yield versus the Treasury's at that 5% range. Um, however, unlike the Treasury curve, the 4 to 10-year part of the municipal line curve is currently showing the lowest carry on the curve. So to capture high levels of carry and mitigate against potential losses, that would evolve if rates continue to grind higher. We recommend the barbell approach with those high quality AAA munis um, with, you know, a two year and a 12 to 15 year maturity barbell. Um, with this strategy, um, we expect that long term bonds would benefit from falling rates and while you're simultaneously locking in long term income. And from a valuation perspective, we also see that those longer term maturity bonds on the muni curve have much more attractive valuation um, than on the shorter end of the term. You know, lastly, as it relates to the equity market, even with elevated valuations on the S&P 500 and an expected slowdown in the U.S. economy, we still see upside potential. This is primarily because we're seeing an improvement in fundamentals, um, which is improving the prospects for long-term return opportunities. U.S. corporate earnings, they've appeared to trough as, we, as they beat expectations in the second quarter. Profit dynamics, are being more supported with an average earnings growth uh, expected in 2024 of 9%. The recent decline in equity prices has also um, taken off a lot of those high valuations, um, moderating um, you know, the drag that, that most investors were, were would be expecting going forward. That being said, we still believe that investors need to be selected by rebalancing and tilting from growth which has outperformed and towards stocks, which have lagged and are presenting better valuation opportunities. Yeah, with the S&P 500 up about 14% year to date and the narrow rally that we saw this year in the top seven tech stocks, the average stock in the S&P 500 is still only up about 1%. Um, so in the next six to 12 months, you know, we're expecting that global equities offer around six to 8% returns with generally flat and volatile returns for year-end. So, Dan, as uh, building off of what you mentioned with respect to rates, do you want to, of course, acknowledge the volatility we've been seeing lately with respect to long-term Treasury yields, most notably over the past month? How has this move impacted other asset classes, and how do you recommend that investors respond here? The high inflation and correspondingly high rates that we're seeing, they're, they're, they're generally a drag on equity returns. Um, and the prospect for higher for longer has, that's part of the reason why we've seen equity valuations repriced. 
the rate volatility really has been remarkable that we've seen. I mean, the moves in the rate market are, are I don't want to say they're unprecedented, but they're at the, some of the highest rates that we've seen in decades. Um, and it has some investors questioning why to invest in risk assets when they can access, access those treasury yields that are near 5%, and even on the ultra-short side of the treasury yield, you know, significantly higher than 5 Um while we're, you know, we're in this rare situation where bonds are more attractive than equities, it's important to recognize a few challenges that investors are facing as they look to over allocate to bonds and question whether or not they should be holding those risk assets. You know, those risks include the reinvestment risk, the opportunity costs, and the interest rate risks of the bonds, all which need to be evaluated relative to your investment horizon and generally support building a diversified asset allocation across a combination of what Dan V mentioned of equity bond and alternatives like hedge funds. Now, if I could dive into each one of those uh, those components, the reinvestment risk and the interest rate, rate risk are for, forcing investors right now to walk a tightrope with yields around that 5% mark across the curve. While we believe you should lock in rates at these levels, investors who lock in on the shorter end of the curve they're likely to see their bonds mature after rates have fallen, and they'll they'll either need to choose to invest in lower-yielding bonds when they hit maturity or be subject on taking on equity risk to make up for the fall and return expectations. If the market significantly slows um, during this period of, of, in the short term with those short-term uh, bonds, yes, they won't have the interest rate risk, but, you know, they'll be subject to potentially – possibly entering at, you know, unideal entry points in the equity market, especially if the, the economy slows, you know, more than expected and we're in a recession. On the other side of those coins, the, the you know, the individuals who go into the long-term bonds, they have, they have less reinvestment risk, but they increase both the opportunity cost relative to equity markets producing attractive returns over the long term, which we do believe will be the case, and they also increase their interest rate risk which could pose fairly disastrous if the economy should continue to produce high inflation and resilient economic growth, because it would force the Fed to raise rates even higher, um, as they did in the late 1970s when inflation was uh, stubbornly uh, stubbornly high. Um, while we believe rates are more likely to decline over the next few years, the downside scenario of rates rising because of persistent inflation would result in some significant market-to-market losses on long-term quality bonds, um, more, much more than those shorter maturity bonds because of the duration effects. Uh, recall in 2022, just last year, the rate rise of 2%. It resulted in a loss of almost 30%. And this year, long-term treasuries have lost over 12% as we've continued to see rates rise. So as it relates to that opportunity cost and your investment horizon being a key consideration, you know, historically, when we see inflation and rates fall, which is our base case, equity prices have increased, even in the light of slowing economic growth. As long as the U.S. doesn't experience a recession, we expect, uh, we expect, um, equities, you know, to, to, to deliver their long-term trend over the long term of, of about eight to nine percent altogether. We see a few ways investors should be positioning to balance the opportunities of high rates with these risks. You know, first, balance reinvestment interest rate risk by, you know, tailoring to the five to 10 year part of the treasury curve as you lean into, into bonds over equities. Second, 
um, you know, look to the improving fundamentals in the equity market that's giving support to maintain an equity allocation to maximize long-term returns and avoid the timing of the market. Um, and third, you know, seeking those diversifying strategies that Dan talked about that add resilience to your portfolio with strategies that can take advantage of what is going to be a changing economic environment that results in a lot of dispersion between winners and losers. Those strategies, like hedge funds, you know, can mitigate downside risk during scenarios of a potential hard landing while taking advantage of what we expect to evolve in terms of, you know, higher default rates, higher credit spreads, equity, volatility, and macro mispricing. Thank you, Dan. So, Dan V., what about your thoughts in terms of the rate volatility we've been seeing and how that has impacted other asset classes? Sure. Yeah. So, Dan asked, uh, talked quite a bit about the, the longer end of the of yield curves, kind of longer-term bonds. Maybe I'll focus on the on the shorter end and, and what that means for, for other asset classes. Um, Dan mentioned this. I mean, the, the, the Fed, other central banks, have, uh, I believe... The consensus, if not explicit, then implicit is higher for longer. Uh, so what do higher interest rates, what does the higher kind of near end, short term end of the curve mean? Um, what does it mean for a range of asset classes, stocks, bonds, uh, illiquids, uh, alternatives, et cetera? Um, uh, my, my team at AQR, we wrote a piece, uh, came out just a couple of weeks ago. You can find it on our, on our website called Honey, the Fed Shrunk the Equity Risk Premium. Uh, for any Rick Moranis friends out uh, fans out there, uh, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, if anyone doesn't know uh, the movie reference, then congratulations, you are uh, a millennial. Um, what do we do there? Okay, we took the history of interest rates and we we kind of divvied them up into two categories. Were they uh, was it a low rate environment or uh, you think of the past decade as a, really a low rate environment, or was it a high rate environment? Was it was it something like what we're seeing today? And then the analysis it was pretty straightforward. We said, okay, well, what are asset class or strategy returns uh, in the midst of and following, you know, shortly following over the next year, over the next three years, uh, each of these environments? In other words, if you're in a low rate environment and you think you're going to be in it for a while. On average, what did you get for being a stock market investor or a bond market investor or a private equity investor? And, and same for uh, the environments like what we're in today, the high-rate environments. Uh, so what do we find? Well, the traditionally kind of thought of risky asset classes, so equity-sensitive asset classes, so public equity, private equity, um, um, high-yield bonds, um, even real estate, these tended – to have more headwinds in high-rate environments. Their return over cash actually, on average, came down in those periods. You were compensated less for the risk you were taking as an investor in those high-rate environments. Um, and so I think this has some ramifications for uh, diversification, for asset allocation. Um, if the historical drivers of returns in your portfolio – are encountering headwinds if they're somewhat impaired because of the rate environment, well, suddenly the hurdle for diversifying uh, has come in. It's, it's gotten a bit lower. And so I think um, kind of in the absence of, of anything else in terms of uh, macro forecasts or, or, or valuation indicators, uh, the high interest rate environment should give investors pause in terms of setting expectations and particularly asking, okay, is my portfolio sufficiently well diversified? 
Um, two bright spots in our analysis. Uh, this might not seem surprising. It might even seem self-serving since I uh, work at a place that specializes in alternatives. Uh, we find diversifying alternatives actually fared quite well. If you think of the level of interest rates, imagine you're kind of looking over a like a boat harbor, and you can think of the level of interest rates as the tide. As the tide goes up, there are a few investments that are kind of like boats that rise one for one with the tide, uh, and we find that a lot of diversifying alternatives. Uh, in the paper, we look at uh, uh, macro types of strategies like uh, like managed futures or trend following, um, and then also more uh, stock selection-oriented uh, strategies. In the paper, we look at equity market neutral. Uh, we find they do a fine job, at least historical, historically, of, of keeping up, of, of rising with that kind of cash tide. Um, I, mean, I do want to make one caveat. I, I said, you know, it might seem kind of self-serving. The data we looked at in the paper wasn't just AQR strategies. It was the entire hedge fund uh, index so that, you know, we wouldn't be kind of cherry-picking any any results. Um, but it's exciting for a, from a diversification standpoint because it's something that we believe is sort of pervasive uh, to these types of strategies and, and might be a good place for investors uh, to look in the high rate environment that we're that we're seeing today. So with that, Dan V, I do want to pivot a bit, turn to the focus of our conversation, that being approaches, considerations when it comes to investing in alternatives. Now, in terms of investment approach, investors want to know how they can proactively mitigate downside risks. What are some alternative approaches investors can consider to help protect their portfolios against bad outcomes? I think when it comes to glass half full types of conversations, bad outcomes, drawdowns, tail risks, all this, I think there's two schools of thought, uh, and they can they can roughly be described as hedge and diversify. I'll start with hedging. Hedging is the more direct approach. Uh, these types of strategies often have uh, names associated with them, like tail hedging funds or, or black swan funds. Um, these types of strategies are the main engine under the hood, the main kind of driver of returns. The thing you're mostly getting when you get these strategies is put options, uh, specifically deep out-of-the-money put options. Uh, these are just instruments that are designed to pay off handsomely uh, when bad times do occur. Um, so that's, that's hedging, and this is sort of a direct response to the risk or, or fear or likelihood of uh, of a meaningful portfolio loss or, or a drawdown. The second category, uh, diversify or diversification, this is less direct. Admittedly, you shouldn't expect this to work quite as often as hedging because it's it's sort of an indirect way of, of dealing with, with risk. Um, rather than focusing explicitly and narrowly on the risk associated with equity market drawdowns, uh, diversification instead is all about just adding additional sources of returns to a portfolio, um, ones that are kind of designed to be independent uh, of, of everything else, ones that might be expected to deliver regardless of whether uh, we're in a good state of the world or, or a bad state of the world. Okay, so these are kind of the two schools of thought. Um, my team has spent a lot of time uh, trying to figure out, okay, based on history, based on data, based on theory, based on economic intuition, which of these two is the better deal for investors? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm going to give kind of the most frustrating answer to a question, and that is, it depends, 
but let me tell you how it depends and, and why. If the risk, if the fear, if what you're looking to address, if your worry is about a bolt from the blue, sharp, fast, quick drawdown, uh, think of uh, February 2020 or, or March 2020, the, the COVID drawdown, the direct approach is hard to beat. Direct hedging, these kind of tail risk types of funds, these um, black swan types of funds, they tend to do great in those short, fast, quick drawdowns. Um, however, if what you're worried about is a drawdown that persists, one where losses kind of keep piling up for many months, quarters, et cetera, uh, so examples of this would be the tech bust, uh, global financial crisis, these types of protracted bear markets, in those scenarios, diversification, that school of thought has tended to be the, the clear winner. Um, so in some sense, it depends on your investment horizon. If you have a very short-term horizon, then maybe these kind of direct hedges, these, these strategies that are explicitly designed to do well in a crisis, maybe that's the right strategy for you. Uh, in our paper, we argue that for most investors, uh, particularly ones with sort of multi-year horizons, diversification is a best game in town. It's, it's a hard strategy to beat because in addition to working on average, it should on average also help in the bad times. Um, we think that that's the one that most long-term investors uh, should consider when they're looking to uh, strengthen uh, their portfolio's resilience uh, against bad times. Uh, specifically, okay, so what types of diversifiers do we find work? Well, one thing to look for um, is ones that don't have a lot of sensitivity or exposure to underlying markets. Um, some of the ones that we find, uh, not just AQR, but in general across the industry, uh, that have sort of the greatest success at doing this are macro-oriented strategies, be it a global macro strategy or uh, more specifically a managed futures or trend-following strategy. Uh, these have a, frankly, pretty impressive track record of doing well when most needed. Um, other strategies uh, not to be ignored or not to kind of um, to fail to consider would be um, ones that have a large component of returns coming from uh, equity market neutral types of, um, of uh, alpha signals. Um, both of those we, we find to be um, particularly good. Um, if I had to pick one of the two to kind of focus on, it would be the more macro ones. Uh, those have a, a pretty strong history of, of delivering when most needed. So with that, Dan S., what about your thought when it comes to downside risk protection, using alternatives such as hedge funds, some considerations when it comes to approach? Similar to what Dan B. talked about, you know, the typical approach for long-term diversification for turbulent periods, most investors have looked to, the, looked to bonds to provide the counterbalance to mitigate those downside risks. However, look what happened last year. Look what happened in February of this year in August, as well as September, you know, when we saw bonds and stocks simultaneously decline. And when we do our research and we look at the data, we find that when there is high inflationary environment, those typical diversifying relationships between stocks and bonds, they tend to break down because policy plays through both equities and a drag on equities, as well as a drag on those bonds as they raise rates. Um, and because of that, as inflation moderates, we do expect that that relationship between stocks and bonds, that diversification for, for long-term risk mitigation um, to normalize. But it's going to take some time. However, you know, portfolios 
you know, they need more than just stocks and bonds to protect uh, against those sudden shocks. Dan also, you know, talked about, you know, using those hedging strategies. Yes, for the sudden shocks, we, 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 you know, using a hedging overlay with, uh, with a put option is something that we do talk to our clients about. But at the moment, the VIX, the measure of volatility in the market is, is above 21%. And when, when we see high levels on the VIX, the number one thing that dictates the cost on those hedging strategies is volatility. Um, and, you know, they can get those premiums can be quite expensive for the insurance that you're overlaying on, on your portfolio. So as we look at that continuation of volatility that we're already seeing in the equity and rates market, and we think about, you know, the de- a potential downturn or turbulent periods, you know, specifically hedge fund strategies are our go-to um, place in order to maximize our diversification. You know, part, you know, and part of the reason for that is when we look at the data, you know, looking at the HFRI fund weighted composite historically, it's captured about 30% of the equity drawdowns because of how risk conscious uh, the hedge fund strategies tend to be. Now, on the other side, they capture about 45 to 50% of the monthly advances. That asymmetry in risk, in return capture, more return capture on the upside, less return capture on the downside, is, is a, it causes a lot of diversification in portfolios. And we've observed that relationship as we look at the monthly data going back to 2000 on those index. Um, beyond the advances of that, uh, the, the, excuse me, the advantages that we see in that asymmetry in market capture, when markets are range bound, that tends to be the ideal environment where the volatility is high, you're seeing those drawdowns, managers focused on long short equities and relative value credit, they've enhanced the opportunities to capture outperformance of, of one security relative to another while limiting the portfolio's market exposure. Similar to what Dan said, you know, for environments where you have high dispersion between economies, asset classes, monetary policy trends, um, they all tend to be very positive for global macro strategies. Um, these are the least correlated to the market cycle. Um, there's, there, in fact, they typically have almost zero correlation to the market cycle over the long term. And, and therefore, those diversification benefits have disproportionately reduced the volatility of portfolios. Since 2010, you know, we've seen that macro strategies, with the exception of last year, face significant, significant headwinds. Why did they face those headwinds? Because we were in a different paradigm. We had low rates. We had negative rates internationally, subdued commodity prices, dollar dominance. Um, you know, all the economies trending in the same direction with the equity market, you know, you know, full steam ahead. Um, that one directional roaring equity market and all those other factors, you know, have started to reverse in the marketplace. And we're seeing that diversification benefit for macro strategies. And we're also positioning with equity market neutral, low net equity long short managers that Dan Villan mentioned, um, because we don't want to have that, that market exposure. We want to protect more on the downside. And we see about a 50% downside protection out of those managers in, in those turbulent periods. So, Dan V., now that we have a better understanding of approaches to consider, from the client's perspective, a couple of questions come to mind, those being what are the return profiles for those approaches, as well as the risk considerations. In terms of return profiles, all forms of diversification, uh, explicit hedging, you know, these kind of downside-oriented strategies, 
all of these have return pro- profiles that are extremely hard to stand by and to continue being invested in when traditional markets are doing fine. Uh, these are strategies that are not designed to keep up with U.S. equities when U.S. equities have a great decade. Um, all of these things, diversification, hedging, are far too easy to abandon before they're most needed. And and it sort of makes conceptual sense. You know, if, if you have something that's supposed to do well in bad times and you don't have any bad times, you shouldn't expect uh, great success from that particular part of the portfolio. And you can see this type of behavior um, with the range of investors, uh, be they professional, uh, uh, you know, big funds, uh, individual investors. I, I think it's human nature um, that makes it hard to hold long-term strategies um, over over short-term periods. Um, so, you know, in terms of, okay, well, how should an investor live with this return profile? It's a, it's a type of strategy that may have long-term benefits, but might be harder to hold, you know, from month to month, year to year. Well, one thing is, to the extent possible, uh, don't compare the returns of a diversifier uh, to those to the rest of the portfolio. You know, remind yourself of the role, the ultimate kind of objective of diversification, um, and set expectations that diversifiers they shouldn't look good when the rest of a portfolio is doing great. Um, now, of all of the t- different types of strategies, one way to make holding them, one way to make the risk the return profile a little easier to hold for the long term um, is, well, one one of the challenges with hedging strategies, those kind of direct hedges, uh, they tend to have negative returns on, on average. So maybe if, in terms of ease of holding something, go more for diversification rather than hedging. Um, the second is uh, to, to echo um, what Dan Scanceroli said is um, – Truly market neutral strategies, equity market neutral strategies, ones that have zero correlation or zero beta to traditional markets, um, they can be hard to hold when traditional markets are doing well. Um, one way uh, to address that is maybe to take on a little bit of that market exposure. Uh, to the extent that can help you kind of stay invested during good times, that could be the right choice for some investors. Um, so maybe instead of an equity market neutral fund, maybe it's an equity long short strategy where the market exposure, rather than being the same as, as equities themselves, or maybe half that of equities, but a huge chunk of what you're expecting to get from the strategy is still true diversification, uh, sources of returns that, that should be independent and, and kind of help when you actually need them. What about your thoughts, Dan S.? Yeah, the, re- the return profiles for, for, for hedge funds, they, they center around providing differentiated returns to, to attack markets with more efficiency per unit of risk. And, you know, that's echoing what Dan V was talking about in terms of that means that they're just naturally unlikely to keep up with, you know, mass, you know, strongly advancing equity markets. That's not what they're designed to do. You know, more specifically, as we look at the, the long short equity managers that Dan was discussing, they need dispersion in, or, in sectors and factors and single equities in order to generate returns. Narrow market rallies like what we saw with the seven tech stocks this year can be create challenges for them, obviously, to outperform. Additionally, these managers often maintain a, a 
slight long bias for the equity market as they focus on generating a good portion of their of their strategy in uncorrelated alpha through shorting and hedging those long positions. But generally, the risk management overlay of equity long-short managers creates a profile, profile that mitigates about 50% of the downside risk because of those uncorrelated alpha streams that produce positive returns when equities are range-bound. However, when equities go into that bear market territory, part of the beta is going to drag them down. Um, but, you know, with a good degree of diversification, last year was a good example of this. When the equity market was down about 13% for the year, the average long short, you know, long short equity manager was down about 9%. While the average hedge fund, if we look at the other strategies like macro strategies, which, which can, you know, have less beta exposure, they're, they were down about 3.8%. They mitigated the downside risk, but the 4% outperformance of, of those equity long short managers, it wasn't enough to produce a positive return, uh, for, for that, that, that tumultuous period. On the other side, relative value credit managers, if we look into them, they produce better returns when rates are higher and spreads are wider. Um, spreads have remained significantly low on, uh, you know, this year as the economy has remained resilient. But going forward, you know, we're, we've already seen that rates are higher for longer. Um, and that is the expectation to continue for some period. And we know that it's starting to take a, a, an effect on the economy. And we expect that that is going to result in a pickup in defaults and wider credit spreads in a slowing economy. These strategies, you know, relative value and, uh, you know, and, and long short equity, they're much more insulated from equity and high yield market trends. However, during large credit crunches, relative value strategies can see double-digit drawdowns. Now, lastly, we also touched previously on the macro strategies. They are, as we've mentioned over and over again, the most idiosyncratic relative to traditional markets, posing the strongest diversification benefits of traditional hedge fund strategies. Their drawdowns have historically come when other asset classes are actually aggressively moving higher, getting to the point that it makes it difficult to keep them in your strategy and have that long-term outlook. You know, the dispersion of returns and the FX, the commodity, the rates and the equity markets, you know, it's critical in, as they're able to pick up those trends um, when you put them in a portfolio, but need to obviously have that long-term outlook in terms of when they are going to come into favor. And the goal is to make sure you have strategies that come into favor when other strategies are not. So as we're beginning to wrap up, this, of course, has been a very productive conversation informing our listeners, our clients on approaches to consider when it comes to investing in alternatives such as hedge funds. What are some final thoughts, takeaways you would leave our listeners, our clients with? Markets are likely to continue to be volatile in the next six to 12 months, and that's creating opportunities for active managers who can really down manage those downside risks, but focus on what is likely to continue to be the dispersion in potential outcomes, dispersion in valuations, asset classes, global economic trends. The high treasury yields that we're seeing right now, they do present an opportunity to lock in rates before they fall. We don't want to be shopping for yields you know, 12 months from now if they do. Um, the equity laggards in consumer staples, utilities, and industrials, they're also likely to provide better valuation entry points as well as resilience if we do see a a slowing economy, which is our base case expectation. Uh, we believe that in this environment, it's essential to diversify portfolios with non-traditional 
idiosyncratic opportunities that mitigate downside risk and capture potential for outperformance. Hedge funds can pose an attractive solution here, particularly because of their risk management and active management focus. The most important final takeaway that I would say is get your portfolio back in balance, stay diversified, and incorporate alternatives. All right. Well, to to commemorate a call with three Dans, I'm going to end with another D word, diversification. Um, diversification has always been thought of in academia, in, in kind of uh, research circles. Diversification has always been thought of as a good idea. You know, it's the so-called uh, only free lunch in finance. Um, however, <laughs> quite frankly, um, diversification has not farewelled for a fairly long time. Uh, Post-GFC, during the, an entire decade of the 2010s, stock markets alone could get you there. Uh, they had above average returns, and, and even within stock markets, the U.S. Uh, trounced most other markets. So diversification, even beyond just U.S. home bias investing, uh, looked like a pretty bad long-term decision, um, you know, at least in the rearview mirror. Uh, I, I think for a generation of investors, um, all you had to do was hold a lot of U.S. equities, and you probably would have done better than a lot of so-called uh, sophisticated uh, investors. I think, uh, and AQR thinks, um, that that's going to change this decade. Uh, beyond the shorter-term macro conditions that we talked about at the start of this call, uh, longer-term measures of expected returns, uh, valuation measures, um, these suggest that the next 10 years aren't going to be as easy as the last 10. Uh, every year, uh, AQR, UBS, most firms put out their capital market assumptions. So just to put a number uh, to get a sense of the magnitude of what we're talking about here, uh, AQR's capital market assumptions for a traditional 60-40 uh, portfolio is that it's going to earn about 3% over inflation over the next decade. Um, that is less than half of what it made over the last decade. And I think really should redouble investors' effort and interest in building more diversified portfolios. Uh, what worked in the past, uh, we think, is less likely to work going forward. Well, Dan Villalon, Dan Scanceroli, thank you both again for your time today. Very productive segment. We covered a lot of ground and left our listeners a lot of takeaways when it comes to considerations, approaches for investing in alternatives, namely hedge funds. So we'll, of course, keep in touch, see how market conditions evolve from here, and do look forward to having you both back to continue the conversation. Thanks, Dan. Till next time. Looking forward to it. Again, today we have been joined by Dan Villalon of AQR Capital Management, co-head of the Portfolio Solutions Group, as well as Dan Scanceroli of the UBS Chief Investment Office, head of Portfolio Strategy and UBS Wealthway Solutions for the Americas. I do want to point out to our clients of UBS listening in, if you do have any follow-up questions based on what you've heard on today's podcast, do encourage you to reach out to your UBS financial advisor. You can also locate publications collateral as it relates to alternatives, hedge fund investing on the website UBS.com slash CIO. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
Investing in an alternative investment fund is speculative and involves significant risks. There are risks specifically associated with investing in hedge funds, which may include risks associated with investing in short sales, options, small cap stocks, junk bonds, derivatives, distressed securities, non-U.S. securities, and illiquid investments. For a discussion on these risks, please visit UBS.com slash CIO disclaimer NTA. UBS Wealthway is an approach incorporating liquidity, longevity, legacy strategies that UBS Financial Services Incorporated and our financial advisors can use to assist clients in exploring and pursuing their wealth management needs and goals over different time frames. This approach is not a promise or guarantee that wealth or any financial result can or will be achieved. All investments involve the risk of loss, including the risk of loss of the entire investment. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.